Hello, and welcome to the All Saints Podcast. I'm Hugh Cole. Thank you for joining us for a new episode of our series, Calling, where we're speaking with priests about how they made the interesting and complex decision to follow God's highest call. Today, we have a conversation with Ann Kopp. Ann is a recently retired Episcopal pastor who was called later in life and subsequently had the opportunity to pastor to many different people in many different life situations. I hope you enjoy. I started by asking her to read from a book that she had sitting with her at the start of our interview. I'll be glad to, Hugh. It's a, a book by Rowan Williams called A Ray of Darkness. And he's written a couple of essays about vocation. I grabbed it because I remember reading it a while ago, giving it to a friend who was struggling about whether she was called to be ordained or what. And he says, vocation is, you could say, what's left when all the games have stopped. It's that elusive residue that we are here to discover and to help one another discover. And when you read that to me before, you chuckled a little bit at the word games. It, it, it seems like the implication is that a lot of the other stuff we do really are just games and vocation has a bit of a higher calling than those other items. Do you think that that's accurate? Right. Yeah. And in um, the ordination exercise, at least in the Episcopal Church, it becomes, or it's it almost becomes uh, gamey because you are listening, quote, the word is discerning to see whether you have a call to the priesthood because we are still struggling with clericalism, namely putting clergy on a different tier than lay people, because that still exists, it feels like you're deciding or you're discerning whether you are available for like a promotion, um, which of course isn't it at all. But then when you have to step back or you're disappointed and you're not, you feel like a failure that God has rejected you. So it's a fraught process that I believe and have no doubt over the years, they'll work out a way where it's not the hierarchy gets more flattened so that this is not, you're not in any higher position or more holy if you have a collar as opposed to not having a collar. I guess I could say I've thought that my whole life. What was it that excited you when you were first feeling that pull? Just an intimation, but I didn't know yet that I could be with people in a different way that when people saw that collar or knew that I wore that collar, they might be more tempted to go to a more personal place or be willing to say, I've always wondered about the Holy Ghost, which one man said to me one time, but they would go into something other than just what's your favorite paint color or something. And again, that's true, but it probably shouldn't be because all of us need to, to sit up and when we meet somebody new, assume that they have a lot to say and that you can learn from them. 
I knew that world, not from the inside, but in fact, nobody in my family even went to church. It wasn't a, I met a lot of people whose fathers or mothers were Episcopal priests. And I felt like I was on my own, that for some reason I'd gone off on this different path. And I saw a, a program from Yale Divinity School and I was looking at the courses and I thought, oh, that's it. That's what I want to do. So I didn't go to seminary thinking I was called to be a priest. I really went because I wanted to learn more. So for me, taking off on this trajectory was as much about head as it was about heart. I, I know that that's probably, or I assume that's probably not that deep burning passion that drives other people, but mine was intellectual curiosity. And sem seminary was when you were in your, this was in your college years when you were in your early twenties or this was later? Oh, no, no, I was, I turned 50 in seminary. So I was probably 49, 48. And it was a real right turn. As I said, I'd been teaching, well, I didn't say this part, I'd been teaching history, but I got hooked on how each civilization or how each group asked the same kind of questions, like, why are we here? What are the attributes of a good person? Is there anything other than us? And they just kept repeating. And I thought, you know, these are really theological questions. And I'm really interested in theological questions. So I stopped that and did this right turn. And seminary was three hard years. Um, I was living in Memphis, Tennessee. My children at that age were just, my son was going away to boarding school and my daughter was her freshman year in college. So it was kind of breaking up a little bit, but the whole time I held this responsibility of, I broke up this family by picking up and moving and living in a dorm. Can I ask you, do you think that there was a sense of guilt or a sense of weight that was added to that because you were a mother and not a father, because you were a woman in that instance? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. There was no path that I knew of for this. There were other people who'd been ordained, but I didn't really have access to them or know them. And I felt incredibly responsible for uprooting everybody. You're right. It was a very hard um, maternal move. Someone once described it as, and this is what it felt like at times, like running a lawnmower through a rabbit's nest. Was there a point where that lifted or that weight became less burdensome? Was there a point where you sort of sat up and said, okay, this was really worth it? That would have been wished for, longed for. What happens instead is like the first year and a half were just so exciting and so amazing. And I didn't have to think what it all added up to. It was itself. It was sheer joy and excitement. But as the three years went on, I started to think, okay, what am I supposed to do now? I mean, it, it's not exactly a vocational school like learning to be an electrician or a plumber. So coming out of it, if I weren't ordained, then, then what? And that, that was, difficult because my, my strong belief is you shouldn't, 
you don't go to seminary only to be ordained. I just told myself, just because I've, I've been to seminary doesn't mean I'm called to be a priest. And so I graduated and I kept trying to hold these two apart from one another, this seminary experience, which had been great, and the experience of being ordained. And I was also struggling with one is not better than the other. They're not lined up and the, the real goal is a clergy goal. Anyway, I moved to Las Vegas kicking and screaming. And that was like being sent into the wilderness by God. <laughs> you know, when Luke says the spirit, or Mark, I guess, says the spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness. That's what it felt like. And it looked like the wilderness as well. Yeah. Did I read correctly that one of your stops in Las Vegas was ministering to prisoners? Yeah. I ended, ended up doing that. Ended up being uh, the chaplain in the woman's prison in North Las Vegas, Nevada. And if I thought Las Vegas was a wilderness, North Las Vegas looked like a big construction site. There was nothing. I think the person that hired me must have been pretty desperate because I remember thinking, there is no way you, should, you can apply for this job. You are absolutely unsuited to be in a prison. You have no street smarts, very little common sense, and you're kind of academic. And I just don't see all this coming together, but I needed, I needed to work. So I went and he hired me. I was available to everybody. Uh, I had a little office. They could come to me or I could go to them. We all ate together. One of my first experiences there is they came up and said, you probably need to go see this person in solitary. And here was this absolutely naked woman in this concrete box. The, there was a toilet in one corner, no, no wall or privacy. And the only thing she had to cover, or the only object in there was a really uh, stiff blanket. I walked in. I'd never seen her before. I knew very little about anything. And I thought, you know, what do I say to this poor person? And I got down on the floor with her. And for some reason or another, I thought, what would I like it if I were at this bottom place? And I thought, a hug. So I reached over and she really clung to me. And I thought, wow, I have a trembling, naked woman that I've never seen before holding on to me. This is pretty real. This is, I, I can't, this is not the game. <laughs> this is something else. And it kind of went from there. I learned about vulnerability, how to be vulnerable. They taught me how to be vulnerable, how I already knew I was privileged, but what underprivilege really meant. The, the strength that it took to push through the discomfort and get to that place with those inmates, who, who modeled that for you when, when you were younger? I imagine at some point in your life, someone must have taught you how to, how to accomplish that or how to be that. Was there someone in your life that modeled that for you at a young age or um, later on in life? That's a good question. 
I can think of one priest when I was in high school. I guess he was very brave. It was in the middle of the civil rights stuff. And he was the one who stood up. He was just the assistant. But he says, we've got to let people come in if they come to our door. So that was real courage uh, in that setting. Uh, I must uh, maybe observe that, but I wasn't really concentrating on that. I really think it was sheer blessing that let me just shed all of that and say, okay, your job is to be absolutely present to these people. Well, interestingly enough, when you and I first met, um, was at a small country church in the suburbs of Baltimore, Maryland, you know, very wealthy suburbs of Baltimore, Maryland. And I mean, I, I, I suppose the question is, how, how do you connect those two experiences in your life and sort of, is there anything, is there any connection, is there any common thread that runs through either one of those experiences for you? Of course, when people get an extremist, they're dying or they're terribly frightened because they've just discovered that they have something. When people get that vulnerable, we're the same. But the length of time that you can know somebody and never know that they live in an abusive household or whatever it is, or they're an alcoholic or something, could be a long, long time. I'd heard a speaker from in, in the church in Memphis, a downtown church that was pretty privileged. And the speaker was an extraordinary person who managed to serve as the chaplain for the Ku Klux Klan and the NAACP at the same time. He liked margins. He was out at the edge and he was a pretty fierce character. And he looked out over this sea of white faces and he said, you know, I've always been with people on the very, very edge. And he said, but you know what haunts me when Jesus says, do this to the least of these? He looked out and he said, you all might be the least of these. That's what haunts me. Sort of meaning spiritually bereft, et cetera. And I didn't think in such grand terms, but I thought, okay, I guess this is where God wants me to be. It's not where I thought I would be uh, if I had a vision that was different than this, but there must be some reason. So I imagine though, along that journey from the prison to, to your later years, such different experiences along the way, did you doubt what you were feeling at any point? Did you doubt the calling or did you doubt the direction that God was taking you in? I thought this was extraordinary, Hugh, because for somebody who hadn't had this clear out of the blue calling, um, I was available for thinking, God, somebody's made a big mistake. This is not my calling. This is not what I'm supposed to do. Help, what do I do now? But I never doubted that becoming a priest was absolutely right. I think some of that was, it's couched in Rowan Williams' uh, quote, when all the games are over, when you've done all the other stuff that the culture has laid out for you, going to school, being a student, getting advanced degrees, teaching in a university, all of that was 
while my parents hadn't done that, there were plenty of models to do that. At that point, I just had to say, if I were ever in control of this, I'd lost it. So all of that was a very unusual um, journey. And, and the church I've ended up with is a great bookend to the prison because it's a little church in Northeast Baltimore. I didn't know Northeast Baltimore at all, but I was meeting with a group of clergy at the time as a, as a uh, sort of support group, I guess, all of us supporting one another. I went to the very first meeting after I went to this little church called St. Matthias. And I said, I don't know what's happened or how it's happened, but I may have ended up in heaven. You mentioned earlier in the conversation about how one of the things early on that you wanted to get out of the experience of being a priest was the deeper relational bonds that you could form with people. And it sounds like you got that at the end there. Yeah, I got it along the way. Um, it, it always moved me how I could not know people at all. And if somebody in the family died, their house became totally open to me. I, I could go in and out and in and out and be welcomed and become part of that household for a period of time, not just for a service. And I thought, I'll never have this kind of experience. I can never just walk into a hospital room, walk into these intimate places at intimate times and be welcome, not be an intrusion. So I found that just remarkable. Where do you think that desire was born in you? Was it, was it when you were younger or was it somewhere along the way? I'm an introvert who was trained to be an extrovert because I grew up as a girl in the South. And my mother was very gregarious and just her idea of misery was to be by herself. And because I'm an introvert, I really got much more out of being with people one-to-one or one-to-five than I did to be in these great groups of people. That was almost an inverse influence but I probably learned from her how to win trust by being with people, by listening, by having telling stories. That was probably modeled from her. What did Sundays look like in your house growing up? My earliest memory is that my father would take us, sit in the parking lot and read the paper. Um, it was not a churchy family. There were no no blessings said, no speculations about theology. And so when I started to go to seminary and to think about whether I was called to be ordained, everybody in the family, my husband's family, my family, would sort of get behind a wall or their hands and say, what's she doing now? <laughs> because I was such a foreign person. There was nobody in either of those families that had ever done anything like this. But I think in the end, my mother just died a year ago and she was almost 101. And by that time, she had gotten through being opposed to being kind of proud, to even being curious about what Christianity was anyway. 
Because if I was so interested, there must be something interesting here. Um, I wanted to just finish by just asking you about a um, recent sermon that I uh, listened to of yours. And you had a phrase in there that was something that um, sparked something in me. And I'm curious about, um, frankly, what you meant by it, because it was, it was an interesting phrase. Um, and you were talking about the story of Jonah, and you used the phrase divine duress. And I wonder what divine duress is in your mind and sort of what that means to you. Uh, it means God leaning on you and asking something of you that is, that can cause you to suffer. Like jo Jonah's case, he, he didn't want to do, he disapproved even of what he was asked to do, but he was prevailed upon to do it anyway. So that was under duress. Uh, I've just been reading Jeremiah. And Jeremiah says basically to God, you seduce me. And now I'm a laughing stock and I'm all alone and I'm sorry I was born, etc. So he's agonized and he's under duress. Now that was probably overdramatic of, of Jeremiah. I presume he could have walked away. He tried to walk away. Moses tried to walk away. No, I'm not your person. I can't speak. I'm not eloquent. So divine duress, I think it's the notion that suffering doesn't have to be connected to missing the mark, getting off the, getting off the rails, sinning, whatever we want to call it. It, it. it doesn't have to do with that necessarily. And that, that this notion of suffering in the presence of God, in the presence of even having a relationship with God, does not in any way mean that you got it made. It may mean exactly the opposite. So it's hard because they really, at least if you're Jeremiah, they really know about the presence of God and would rather just be left alone. And I can't say I've ever been under divine duress I don't think so. When I try to write a sermon, sometimes I think I'm under divine duress. And maybe I am because every time you write a sermon, there's an easy way and a hard way. And for some reason, the easy way tempts me, but I always feel as if I'm called to do the hard part. But it sounds like it's a position that a lot of us find ourselves in, to be honest with you. Yeah, exactly. I'm telling you, this is not this is not reserved for clergy and prophets and people like that. This is part of any relationship with God. Thank you again for tuning in for my conversation with Ann Cobb. I hope you'll join us next week for our seventh and final episode, for now, of Calling. In it, I'll speak with Will Schaeferman, a former priest at the Falls Church in Northern Virginia and a young man who's already had a remarkable journey in life. Until then, if you'd like to subscribe, rate, or review the podcast, you can do so in your favorite podcast app. Have a great week, and God bless.